Welcome to the Institute of World Politics podcast. IWP is a graduate school of national security and international affairs. To learn more, please visit www.iwp.edu. Good afternoon. I think we'll get started, even though we'll have people trickling in probably over the next few minutes. Um, welcome this cold afternoon. At least it's not as cold as it was yesterday, right? My name is uh, Dr. Paul Coyer. I'm a research professor here at the Institute of World Politics. Um, we are, for many of you that don't know, we are not a think tank. We do like to think, um, but we are not a think tank. We're actually graduate school. Uh, we have uh, about 17 one-year uh, graduate certificates, several master's degrees, and have just started a doctorate in strategic studies. Um, uh, we're privileged today to have Michael Pregent here from uh, the Hudson Institute. I'll give you a bit of his background. Recently, Michael and I have come into contact, I guess, in the last year or so, uh, as I've been become more active in the Middle East, uh, traveling there and getting more involved in how religion shapes uh, the dynamic there. Um, <clears throat> Michael has uh, many years of experience. They're not to make him sound too old. He's still young. But um, he is a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute, a senior Middle East analyst, a former, former adjunct lecturer for the College of International Security Affairs, um, and a visiting fellow at the Institute of National Strategic Studies at National Defense University, NDU, just across town. Michael is a former intelligence officer with over 28 years of experience working security, terrorism, counterinsurgency, and policy issues in the Middle East, North Africa, and Southwest Asia. He's an expert in the Middle East and North African political and security issues, counterterrorism analysis, and strategic planning. He spent considerable time working, uh, working to counter malign Iranian influence in Iraq as an advisor to Iraq's security and intelligence apparatus. Uh, Michael served in Desert Shield and Desert Storm, served as a liaison officer in Egypt during the 2000 Intifada, as a counterintelligence uh, officer at CENTCOM in 2001, and as a company commander in Afghanistan in 2002. Uh, Michael served as an embedded advisor with Peshmerga in Mosul in 2005 and 6. Also, as a civilian SME working for DIA, he served as a political and military advisor to USF-1, focusing on reconciliation, the insurgency, the Iranian influence in Iraq from 2007 through 11. Uh, he, uh, it says here, you are a violent extremist. I think it means you are a violent extremism and foreign fighter analyst. Uh, you are violent against the extremists at, at CENTCOM from 2011 to 2013. Um, Anyway, Michael uh, and I are going to have a, a discussion here about Iranian influence in Iraq. There is uh, not much of a bigger topic right now uh, that needs to be focused on uh, because of the immense impact Iran's influence in Iraq and how the Middle East is having and dynamics there uh, on the, uh, how, how we play our hand going forward. Um, it's just uh, a, critical, a critical dynamic. So, Michael, why don't we start by, I'll just turn things over to you for maybe a five-minute overview, overview. What are the, the highest points, the, the most important things we need to focus on right now about Iran? Going back a few years to, to your experience we were talking about earlier, uh, and what we need to focus on right now. Okay. Thank you, Paul, for having me. Can you hear me okay? And thanks to the Institute of World Politics for having me as well. So the, the key takeaways right now is, are basically 10-year-old Sunni Arabs in Iraq and Syria are going to want to kill 10-year-old Americans 10 years from now because of this campaign, not only the Iraq war as it began in 2003, but this campaign to defeat ISIS. 
So the key takeaways when it comes to Iran is Iran was never in Iraq to defeat ISIS. Iran is not in Syria to defeat ISIS. Iran was in Iraq to defeat uh, future Sunni threats from Iraq and also to establish itself in Iraq's uh, political, economic, and security apparatus. And that's why we have Iran in Syria, and that's why Israel is willing to strike IRC Quds Force targets in Syria because of this, I would call it a failed U.S. policy in Iraq the last you know, 15, 16 years. Uh, and it's, it's not because the people at the time were doing the wrong things, it's because it wasn't consistent. Because success wasn't mirrored, success wasn't followed, uh, it doesn't mean by any, any means that the American generals at the time were doing the wrong thing. It's just that American generals were doing different things over the course of 15 years that have led to a continued cycle of violence that will have 10-year-old Americans fighting in Iraq as 20-year-olds. Because Iraq and the northern Middle East will continue to incubate these existential threats, whether it be al uh, the next iteration of Al-Qaeda, the next iteration of ISIS, but now we have this new added dynamic. You have uh, the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, uh, Shia Liberation Army proxies in Iraq and Syria that have hegemonic goals. I mean, they, they want to be able to threaten U.S. interests, our Sunni allies, and Israel. That's right. It, it's interesting that you say about the 10-year-old boys. <clears throat> when I was there a few months ago, it's one of the things I noticed those 10-year-old boys, uh, Americans are so popular with them right now. Um, I remember, uh, you know, you stick out as an American there, obviously. And, uh, and they notice you, and they all want to talk to you, and they all want to try to practice their English. And, uh, and it's, uh, that's a, you're right, that's a key demographic, those kids and those teens whose perceptions right now of our country are being shaped. Uh, we want to make sure they're being shaped by the, by the, right, uh, the right forces. That's a great opportunity for future security experts for people that are currently involved in our intelligence apparatus, our, our national security, uh, uh, in the national security realm, uh, to look at Iraq. 70% of the population is under the age of, of, of 30. They are increasingly against the political parties. I'm not talking about the Sunnis, I'm not talking about just the Sunni Arabs. I'm not talking about the Kurds that are against the traditional political construct. I'm talking about the Shia youth that make up 60% of this country are now opposing Shia political parties tied to Iran. Um, a key thing happened in 2018. The Shia youth rose up in Basra and burnt down the Iranian consulate. They burnt down the Dawa political office uh, office buildings. They burnt down a, a soon-to-be-designated terrorist organization, Asab Ahul-Haq, or League of the Righteous. They burned down their offices also. Uh, they vandalized Badakor's offices, and these 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 uh, entities, Badakor, an Iranian proxy, AH, an Iranian proxy, uh, Dawa Party, a religious party set up by the Iranians during Saddam's rule, the Shia youth are pushing back against Shia political parties, and we made a big mistake uh, under under this current leadership. We condemned this, and we didn't condemn it condemn it with nuance. We should have said, we understand your frustrations, you're not getting water, you're not getting electricity, Basra is the, the uh, Basra basically generates Iraq's income, and yet people who live in Basra can't have internet, don't have water, don't have electricity, and when they protested, they actually wrote 
their chants in Arabic, English, but the one that was on top was in Farsi because they blamed Iran for this and the Shia political parties tied to Iran. So we have a great opportunity. The next election is 2022. This last election in 2018, estimates between 25 and 40 percent of the population voted. And because of that, you got, you, you know, a body, Prime Minister body was the U.S. preferred uh, candidate, not mine. Everything that Qasem Soleimani, Iran's uh, General Petraeus on the ground, a, a, high, a commander of a hybrid unit. Uh, imagine the CIA and U.S. Special Forces as one unit operating in Iraq with unlimited resources and no rule of law um, to be able to conduct assassinations, uh, bribe, make people disappear, uh, be able to do things with impunity. Uh, this group uh, basically is on the ground doing these, these types of things and, and finally you have the Sunni, Kurdish, and Shia population centers paying attention and rejecting it. And instead of backing the Shia youth up in Basra, the United States State Department condemned them for burning down the Iranian consulate and closed our consulate in Basra, sending a message that that's how easy it is to uh, to, to run the Americans off. Now, I forgot to mention that an Iranian-backed proxy launched mortars at the U.S. consulate in Basra. They weren't so were those security issues, clearly. Well, they weren't close enough to, you know, it was a common thing going to the dining facility in Iraq to hear a siren, get in a bunker, wait for the explosions, and then go about your day. Uh, in this case, we shut down something that the youth wanted to be there. Now, one of the, one of the most important things, the best way to curb Iranian influence in Iraq is to cultivate this 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 uh, electorate. Um, you had again the 2022 election, or correction, the 2018 election. Uh, three parties came in. Uh, Muqtada al-Sadr's party came in first. And again, 20, 24 to 40 percent turnout. The second party, the uh, party that came in second, was tied directly to Iran, and that was the Fatah party. That's Hadi Al-Amri. That's Case Kazali. That's Abu Mehdi Al-Mohendis. It's all of the bad actors that in 2007, General Petraeus was, had, General Petraeus already saw them on the radar and then basically charged H.R. Uh, McMaster, and, and I have worked for H.R. McMaster, about a team of five of us, to assess the level of Iranian influence in Iraq in, in 2007 because Iran had become the biggest threat. Now, these political parties, or these entities, are now leading political parties, and they came in first, second, and third. In, in, in so Iraq, the concerns that you raised 12 years ago are, are now coming to the fore and become reality. Right. Everything we wanted to stop in 2007, we were already trying to stop what happened on June June 14, 2000, or June 12, 2014, when ISIS rolled into Mosul. We were already trying to stop that. But what's happened now, this is what we were trying to stop in 2007. And again, this is a criticism of U.S. foreign policy in Iraq in that after the surge 2007-2008, it was getting better to the point where President Obama said, it's, it's, it's as good as it's going to get, let's, let's send a signal to, to all the players that we're leaving. And what you started to see was immediate security degradation. And again, this is 2008, right? We have 20-year-old Americans in Iraq now, 10 years later, fighting ISIS and now being threatened by Iranian militias. This will continue to repeat itself. 
Um, these parties are now in charge, and they're asking for the immediate exit of Americans from Iraq. Uh, they are not there to defeat ISIS. They need the threat of ISIS to exist because they operate outside of the, uh, the Constitution. They operate outside of the formal security apparatus, and they have primacy. Let's talk about that just a second. There are a couple other points I want to hit on as well, but you just brought up the fact that there seems to be a political movement which was being portrayed by many of the Shia groups as being grassroots and popularly driven, but it's not, to try to push the few remaining American troops out of Iraq. Right. Uh, and in fact, this is evidence of the struggle between Iraq and, or sorry, Iran and Washington for, uh, for, for uh, private place in Iraq. Talk just a little bit about that. Right. So... The argument here, because it's really difficult when you're in these uh, foreign policy circles to talk about designated, a designated terrorist in Abu Mehdi al-Mohandas, designated terrorist groups in Kitab Hezbollah and Assad al-Haq that now have legitimate seats in, in, the, in the Council of Representatives in Iraq. And getting back to that youth, youth demographic in Iraq, they want a relationship with the United States. They don't want one that's simply a military relationship with the United States or a diplomatic relationship with the United States. They want Western investment. They want Western universities to come in. I'm talking about you know, the American University in Baghdad, the American University in Basra, the American University in Mosul. Uh, they want that. They want a, a relationship with the United States that reaps benefits and opportunities and less so the American behind the wall training a 97% Shia security force to go and put down disenfranchised sectors right. in Iraq. And it's not the disenfranchised Sunni anymore. Now it's the disenfranchised Shia that are becoming the loudest voice in this country. And it's a great opportunity for the United States to help Iraq return to its a traditional bulwark status against Iran. That doesn't mean a dictator like Saddam. It means you're actually going to be able to use Sunni, Kurds, and Shia to finally say, no, right. Iraq has an opportunity uh, to, to basically pit its economy against Iran's. Uh, you know, with the sanctions on Iran, we've heard, we've heard uh, uh, there's, there's messages out of Europe that they're getting tired of Iran's aggressive behavior in the Middle East and some of their activities. Uh, Mahon Air cannot fly uh, in Germany anymore, which is a big deal for those of you who follow the sanctions and, and the, the Iran's use of uh, civilian commercial aircraft to move militias uh, into, uh, into uh, Syria and other places in a, a violation of UN Security Council resolutions. Uh, but yet nobody talks about it. But you have um, a great opportunity now to help cultivate this youth. In 2022, you're going to see large turnout because they are so upset. Iraqis are so upset with the turnout or the, the results of the 2018 elections. And you're going to have leaders that are secular, that are pro-business, that are, that are pro-economy, that are pro-West, that are anti-Iran. Not, not anti-Iranian, but anti-regime. And, and I get the argument. I talk to a lot of people about Iran, I said, well, you, Mike, you got to understand, they're, they're, they're neighbors. They share a border. I go, well, the Islamic Republic of Mexico doesn't decide who our president is. You know, the Islamic Republic of Canada doesn't have primacy over our security forces. So that's the dynamic. I want Iran to have a Canada-U.S. relationship with Iraq. Um, 
not the one that they have, not the one that Russia has with Ukraine, not the one that Pakistan has with Afghanistan, right? not the one that Iran has with Iraq. Well, that's, that raises another issue, that of Iraqi nationalism. Right. Uh, so let's talk just briefly, and it's, too, it's a complicated topic, so I'll have to touch on it briefly, but what's, what's your sense of the realism, uh, the, the likelihood that, that an Iraqi nationalistic identity, a positively, uh, a positive one, can actually um, develop with all the combatants, the Sunni and the Shia and the KRG and, and everybody else, the Assyrians, the Chaldeans, and, and everybody, as we know, it's been fractured uh, the country for a long time. And 100 years ago, coming out of the, the dissolution of the Ottoman Empire, it, it never has been a really cohesive nation, uh, except when it was forced to be under Saddam. So what are some steps you think that can be taken? to create that sort of, and to build on positive trends to uh, develop that sort of a sense of national identity and cohesiveness. Well, it's not for the U.S. to, to decide to do that, but it right. is for the U.S. and the West to, to cultivate, not cultivate, but highlight this, this growing leadership in, in this country that is against uh, you know, extremism in, in all forms, that, that basically want to be able to get online and find a university to go to. Or be able to travel somewhere and not be, you know, held up because of you have a, a you know, an ISIS a pocket here. You have uh, Shia militias that answer to Qasem Soleimani threatening your government, but in a country like that, so there are leaders that we need to highlight, that the West needs to highlight, and and the best way uh, for Iraqi nationalism to take shape is for the Shia youth, the protest, the treatment of Sunni Arabs and Kurds in Iraq, uh, because there is a sectarian divide. I get criticized a lot for always having a sectarian dynamic to my, to my, uh, you know, my panels and, and my writings, but it's there. It's there. I mean, when I was in Mosul, I got asked, are you for the Shia or for the Sunni? And I asked, well, who are you guys? And they were all in uniform. They said, we're Shia. I said, I'm for the Shia. You know? <laughs> And then I went uh, down to, to Baghdad and got you know the same thing. So you hear, you always hear something like that. And again, you, you, all you have to do is simply look at the people doing all the right things, all the hard things. Uh, a friend of mine plays cello after car bombs in Baghdad, uh, you know, to, to ease everyone, to bring music, heal. There, there's so many, there's so many good things uh, to, to cultivate here or to bring, to highlight. There are so many positive stories. That reminds me, there's a story I think in the Guardian about two years ago. You see that about a violinist who played uh, in Mosul when ISIS took over. Uh, when a man came in, he played violin, and then he hid his violins, he had multiple of them, in the base, in the, in the, uh, under, you know, the underneath the floors of his home. And when they left again, he played violin again just to symbolize that freeing of the human spirit when they left. There's, I mean, there's signs of hope like that, little ones, but uh, I guess what George H.W. Bush would call a point of light, right? Yes, yes. There are those things, and then there are the accusations that you're a violinist for ISIS. Uh, so when you run for political office, like we have uh, Shema Al Hayali, uh, she was uh, Prime Minister Abdel Abdelmedi's uh, candidate for the minister of the Ministry of Education, and she had to step down because her brother Laith was, uh, you know, I've, I've talked to all sides of this. The Iraqi government says he was a senior ISIS leader. Uh, KRG says he was a senior ISIS leader. Sunni Arabs say no, he was. He was a auto mechanic in Mosul and was forced to do a propaganda video under the threat of, of, of execution. Um, if he if he is all those things, then he should be tried for that. But do you extend the punishment to the sister? 
you extend the punishment to the end. We have to remember what debathification was. So debathification was basically a way to take any competent, didn't matter if you were Sunni, Christian, or Shia, if you were a threat to the Shia religious parties, you became a Baathist. Initially, it was the Sunnis. It, it basically exited the, the capable Sunni security uh, force that we were working with in 2003 to take over, to, to basically uh, tamp down on security once Saddam was removed. There are always generals in the military that are against their leader that summarily executes people based on how he feels that morning. And basically, any competent leader uh, was exited. And debathification gave us a predominantly Shia force, uh, a predominantly Shia force tied to Shia political parties and militias. And now you basically have a 97% Shia force in the Iraqi army, uh, that's the MOD, the Ministry of Defense, and also in the Ministry of Interior. But you also have this group outside of that, which is the Hashid al-Shabi, or the popular mobilization units. And yes, I understand the nuances, that not everyone is an IRC Quds Force operative who's in the Hashid al-Shabi. No, just the ones in charge. Just the ones that decide who gets paid. Just the ones that decide who goes where. Um, so you have, you have this, this, um, this beautiful story of a violinist that does this, and then you have this debathification on steroids, uh, which is the new law. So I don't know if you know this, but uh, if you're captured in Shia, if you're captured in Syria, and you happen to be in ISIS-controlled territory, we try you in Baghdad, because we believe that's a, the government you should be looked at as an ISIS fighter. The problem is, I'm a, if I'm an unwed military-aged male and I'm Sunni, and I was in ISIS-controlled territory, and I have a beard, I actually got a comment on my beard earlier from him, uh, I'm an ISIS fighter or an ISIS collaborator. And my trial is eight minutes long. And basically it's two... Two individuals give two sworn statements, one sworn statement each to the judge that says you're an ISIS fighter and your, your lawyer will defend you for about two minutes and say you're not. And then the judge will say the evidence is overwhelming, you are now going to be sentenced to death and you're going to be executed for being an ISIS collaborator. And the punishment for an ISIS collaborator is no different than an ISIS fighter. And this is debathification on steroids. Debathification made you ineligible for ineligible for a, uh, a teaching position, a technocrat position. Uh, this sentences you to death or puts you in prison for a long time. And and again, it goes back to that 10-year-old Sunni male, Sunni female that sees mom, dad, uncle, wh whatever relative, imprisoned or executed for hiding the violin under ISIS rule for three years and simply going along because and I'm not, I'm not a terrorist sympathizer. I've been called Sadiq Al-Hab from my, my Kurdish friends in the past for, for saying you know, certain things like not every Sunni military Jamal is a terrorist, only the ones that are. The problem is when you look at how do you reform somebody? So I got asked a great question the other day. Do you believe that a terrorist can be reformed? I said, I do. I do, because you can have Sunni Muslim scholars t talk to somebody who's a terrorist and say, you shouldn't do this. But what do you say to the guy who's not a terrorist that simply is there for the revenge factor? That's there because his mom, dad, uncle were basically killed in a U.S. airstrike against one ISIS sniper where we dropped a 500-pound bomb on a building that had 60 civilians in it, yet we killed the ISIS target. It's a precision strike, but the counterinsurgency ramifications will last decades. 
because you now have this this kid that you can't you can't talk to him about Islam and say you shouldn't be a terrorist because he's not there for that reason. He's there because he wants revenge, and he's he may join Al Qaeda or he may join ISIS iteration whatever it is, but it's because they have the means to get him his revenge, right. the weapons, the money, the the protection. So we're not only looking at Islamists or, or, or extremists, we're looking at people with legitimate revenge issues that where they believe it's righteous indignation to kill an American 10 years from now because we propped up a pro-Iran government in Baghdad. We condemned the Shia youth for burning down the Iranian consulate after it basically ordered its uh, Iraqi Shia militias to use live rounds to suppress protests. You know, these are all the things that we ignore, and it's very difficult. I, you know, I, I spent some time in, in Manama, Bahrain, uh, during the Manama Dialogues, uh, listened to General Mattis speak. General Mattis said something that was very eloquent, but it resonated with me. He said, my job is to give diplomats one more hour, one more day, one more month, one more year to do their jobs. And that's exactly what he did by not addressing the creeping Iranian influence in Syria, by saying that there is no land bridge in Iraq by saying that the JCPOA did not fuel uh, Iranian terrorism, it did not prop up Assad. And, and these are all things that we have now seen, have, you know, things that actually happened. Um, the thing about what he said is his biggest concern was putting American soldiers at risk, getting them killed in two years, but you simply, you ensure that the next Secretary of Defense has to do that because of all the things you didn't address. When that position. We have an over-reliance on transient political figures and it's it's the way our democracy is built. It's, it's a good thing. We have change out. The problem is you get two years out of somebody and then you get two years out of somebody else and we have this ebb and flow to our foreign policy in the Middle East where all of our adversaries have the same one for 40 years when it comes to Iran. Right, which gets also to the some many times the lack of American long-term strategic Continuity in yeah. our plans. Um, I wanted to shift just a little bit, but but running off of something you said about uh, public opinion turning against as a pendulum against the Iranians right now, which which really is true, not just in the South, but in a lot of places in Iraq, in Iran um, as well, in Iran as well. Yeah, no, absolutely, in Iran as well. Um, and so you have an opportunity, which we uh, may or may not use wisely. Let, let's talk about Muqtada al-Sadr just for a minute, because he's a, a key part of the dynamic that a lot of people here, I'm sure they're interested in following the country, know about and read about. Talk about him, his version of Iraqi nationalism, whether or not he, you think, can provide some sort of positive leadership to Shia youth that we've been talking about. Um, flesh that out a little bit for us. So what I like about the Shia youth is they're rejecting, they, they're not opposed to what Muqtada al is trying to do with Iraqi nationalism, uh, but they still don't want to be tied to the Syrian still want to be tied to other political parties like Dawah. Even Hikmah's having a hard time. The Hikmah party, uh, the Knowledge Party, has, has done a lot of outreach with the youth. And they, they are cl more closely tied to the youth movement in southern Iraq that they're having a hard time because Hakim, who, who, who is in charge of the Hikmah party, is still identified with his father's role in, in Skiri, Iski, and also you know, the Shia religious parties. So Muqtada al-Sadr, do, do you know who Muqtada al-Sadr is? So Muqtada al-Sadr is somebody that we actually had to hide from his followers that he was actually in Iran. Uh, because his followers tend to be very anti-Iran. Uh, 
his, his Shia militia men, Jaish al-Mahdi, and now Sarah al-Salam, uh, against Iran, but Sadr is not. Okay, Sadr is tough, tough in rhetoric, he says the right things, and then he goes to Iran and apologizes for what he just said in Iran. Everybody talks about what a great move it was for Matan al-Sadr to go to Riyadh to speak to Mohammed bin Salman. Nobody talked about the fact that he went to Tehran three days later to apologize for that trip. Um, the problem I have with Muttar al-Sadr is he's not who we hope he could be. Uh, Saddam didn't kill Muttar al-Sadr for a reason. He said there was no need to. He, he's not. Case Ghazali, if you look at Case Ghazali's interrogation reports that have been unclassified, nobody respected Muttar al-Sadr. Uh, he's, he's considered irrational, but he's not stubborn. He can easily be swayed with money. I, I hope to be wrong, but I, I think that somebody who's been that way for as long as he has, uh, I don't know. I think the only thing that would change his mind would, would be if he married a strong woman. <laughs> and he could change his mind then. But uh, Mutaro Al-Sadr is not who people hope he's going to be. In 2006, he was against Maliki, and then Qasem Soleimani got him to support Maliki. In 2010, he was against Maliki, and Qasem Soleimani got him to support Maliki. In 2014, he was against Maliki, and Qasem Soleimani got him to support Maliki. And in 2018, Qasem Soleimani brought him to Beirut to meet with Nasrallah, and they said, who do you, who do you want to be prime minister? And they agreed on Abdul Abdul Mehdi, they agreed on Baham Salah to be the president, and they agreed on Mohammed uh, Halbusi to be the COR speaker. Not because they were strong against Iran, but because they would not be strong against Iran. Uh, all likable men, but there's a difference between a likable guy and an effective. Yeah, a likable person and an effective person. And if you're looking to somebody to push back against Iran, none of them are that. Yeah, yeah. Now, we, you and I have talked before about <clears throat> the jockeying over the current cabinet, the difficulties in filling it the lack of somebody still in the Ministry of Defense, the Ministry of Interior, and, and one of the things, one of the points you've made in our discussions is that even if you get somebody quote-unquote good in either of those positions, in terms of our position in the country vis-a-vis that of Iran, uh, you still have all the mid-level bureaucrats and all the others that are beholden to Tehran that really run the ship. Um, so let's talk, if you would, about, about that jockeying for those two posts and over the government formation in general but also about the bureaucratic uh, penetration of modern Tehran. So, so the key, key tactic in, uh, in assuaging American concerns about Iranian influence in the MOD and the MOI and other ministries was to simply name, put a Sunni in charge of the ministry and yet have the deputy director control the ministry. And we didn't, we didn't look below the ministry. Uh, the intelligence community did. And those of us that were actually embedded in the ministries basically said, this, this gentleman is actually in charge of this ministry. Uh, every Sunni minister of defense has told American advisors, I'm not in charge of my ministry. Every one of them. Uh, you, you have the, uh, the, the thing that's going on in Iraq right now with the security ministries is, is very interesting. The Hashid al-Shabi already have primacy over the Iraqi security forces. And the reason they have primacy over the Iraqi security forces is because the Iraqi security forces aren't them as well. What I mean by that is the Badr Corps is Iran's premier proxy in Iraq. They control Iraq, Iraq's security and intelligence apparatus. Hadi al-Amri was actually uh, 
you have these you have these meetings in DC where it's supposed, it's supposed to be off the record. I can't tell you how many times he was he was pushed as a potential prime minister for Iraq to see how we felt about it. And those of us that knew who Hadi Alamri was said this is exactly the guy Qasem Soleimani wants to be prime minister because Hadi Alamri has facilitated everything that Qasem Soleimani has wanted to do, everything that Mohandas has wanted to do, everything that Case Kazali has wanted to do. Um, Badakor is the legitimate Iraqi security force uniformed representative of the Quds Force. And I'm, not, I'm saying this as a former intelligence officer who actually worked with these individuals and actually briefed one of the one of uh, Hadi Al Amri's American general advisors. And I said, sir, you know, he's a, he's a Badakor commander. He said, no, he's not. I said, sir, he is. He goes, no, he told me he's not. I'm like, okay, all right, he's, he's not, but here's all the intel that he is. And, and that general today says that Hadi Al-Amri is a, is a Qasem Soleimani puppet. So it's very difficult uh, to, to look at the Iraqi security forces. And we, we go there. I, I talked to a, a general who's, who is, has a key role in shaping the Iraqi security forces and providing weapons and training. And I said, what are, we, what are we building? Why are we building the Iraq? What, what, are we going to, what do we want Iraq's military to do? And he he didn't really have an answer. It was kind of a, I was like, wow, why are we giving them fighter jets? But it's not for Saudi Arabia. It's not for, you know, Syria. It's not for, it's to put down insurgencies in their own country. It's, it's, I'll never forget General Abdul Kanbar. Uh, he was the Baghdad Operations Center Commander. He was Maliki's second cousin through marriage, or a relative through marriage. And, um, he was in charge of, of Baghdad, the Baghdad Operations Plan. Then he became a, basically had primacy over all of the operations centers in Iraq. And he wanted artillery. And we asked him, why do you want artillery? He goes, so I can aim it that way. And that way was Malusia, Ramadi, basically Ambar province. It was with the Sunni enclaves of Baghdad. And he said, he said why, are you, why do you want this? He goes, well, if we ever have a mortar strike in this area, we simply barrage it with artillery and they learn their lesson. Meaning that civilians will rush out and the next time they see a Sunni insurgent with a mortar system and say, please don't do that again. The last time the government killed my family and blew up my house. And they believe that was a pragmatic uh, uh, tactic. Uh, something that they should recommend to the United States. That you should do this. And they actually recommended that we use our Spectre gunships and other assets against uh, Sunni enclaves in Baghdad, but would not allow us to do the same in uh, jam-controlled areas. So, so the Iraqi army is built to put down a civilian insurgency. The Iraqi army is built to defeat ISIS. The Iraqi army is only concerned about the areas it cares about. Uh, that's why Ramadi was 80% destroyed. Mosul was 60% destroyed. Uh, Tikrit was a revenge operation. And Fallujah, which was one of, the, one of the, the towns that was held by ISIS early on, was left there for two and a half years under ISIS control when it could have been liberated within a month if it was strategic to Iran, if it was strategic to Baghdad, but it wasn't. It, it didn't have infrastructure, it simply was a place to punish. So that's why you had a cordon. So when we talk about what we are looking at in Iraq, we're looking at, I'll just say it one more time, 10-year-old Americans will be fighting in Iraq as 20-year-olds. This time, not only against the next generation of ISIS, but against these, these uh, IRC Quds Force militias that now have primacy, freedom of movement, uh, are deployed in Syria, 
are making threats to hit Israel to the point where Israeli generals are now saying that we will hit IRC Quds Force controlled militias in Iraq on the Iraqi side of the border because Qasem Soleimani has told them to stage there because if they go into Syria, they are vulnerable to Israeli airstrikes. That, that brings up a, a great segue into another issue I want to discuss just for a couple minutes before we get to Q&A. Sure. <clears throat> that was the broader strategic contract text, the broader region. You've got Israel, you've got Syria, uh, the impending American pullout from Syria, which is really shaking things up over there. Right. Uh, you got the IDF. I spent some time, as we were talking before, with some IDF officers uh, just before Christmas. We're very concerned about our pullout for obvious reasons. Right. Um, let's talk a bit more about, about that dynamic. What does American pullout from Syria mean for what's going on in Iraq? how Israel responds, how Iran is likely to react, etc. So, so the American pullout of Syria is based on this narrative that ISIS is defeated. ISIS is not defeated. Uh, we've simply knocked down buildings. What we've done in, in this uh, ISIS, defeat ISIS campaign, we've destroyed Sunni cities, we've exited Sunnis into the refugee population, and we've, we've claimed victory over a over a, an enemy that we have temporarily defeated, and we're, te we're temporarily holding that territory that's been cleared of ISIS with the wrong forces. And in, in Iraq, it's you don't hold Sunni territory with Shia militias that view every Sunni military Jamal as an ISIS collaborator or an ISIS fighter. Mosul had 1.6 million people in it. There were four to 6,000 ISIS fighters, yet the city was destroyed. And 1.6 million <coughs> Muslims were exited and put into the refugee camps or the refugee system. Uh, in the old city of Mosul, you had an estimated 600 ISIS fighters and 60,000 civilians. That is an incredible ratio. That is one, for every one ISIS fighter killed, you killed 60 civilians based on that. Killed or injured 60 civilians. I mean, uh, Human Rights Watch now estimates there's one million Iraqis that are missing in Iraq. I mean, that's, that's a lot of people. Yeah. And, and we, don't, we don't talk about that. We're not looking at what happens five years from now, what happens yeah. ten years from now, what's happening now. So if we pull out of Syria, it's a, it's a win for Iran, it's a win for Russia, it's a win for Assad, it's a win for ISIS, it's a defeat for our Kurdish allies, it is a win for a, a, a NATO ally that's not acting like a NATO ally. And the president runs the risk of doing or doing what he said Obama did in 2008. President Trump said Obama pulled out of Iraq too soon, and it led to the rise of ISIS. If the president pulls out of Syria, um, he's facing an ISIS resurgence ahead of the 2020 elections. And, and we're already seeing that. ISIS is, is alive and well in Iraq, in Diyala and Salah Adin provinces, uh, in the, in the uh, in Syria and previously held territory, there's still an ISIS presence on the border. And the thing about this is, the president is right to criticize the Syria policy because it wasn't working. Our Syria policy is supposed to defeat ISIS uh, and, and, curb, or, and exit Iran. Uh, we don't have force or the strategy to do, to do either. Uh, we are working with the SDF in, in northern Syria to hold territory and They've been a very capable ally in defeating ISIS, but they're the long hold force because they're going to look to bargain held territory for concessions from either Damascus, working with Russia and Iran to, to get the assurances that they will keep them from being targeted by Turkey. There's all sorts of things there 
But the one thing that worked in the surge, and again, this is this is why I criticize U.S. foreign policy, is you don't you don't repeat success, you don't mirror success. The surge used Sunnis, basically had 105 static Sunni military Jamals point out who I, who Al Qaeda was, point out uh, protect their neighborhoods from Shia militias. They were a static force. Uh, General Flynn, General McChrystal, Mattis, but Master also have all said. The best way to defeat the Sunni insurgency is with Sunnis, Sunni males, and Sunni intelligence. So Sunni males, military age fighting males, and and Sunni intelligence. And this ISIS campaign never never sought to use the Sunnis that Maliki exited from the Iraqi security forces to kill ISIS in Iraq, and never built a Sunni force in Syria. Um, the the biggest problem here is ISIS is alive and well in northern Iraq. Reconstruction funds are not going to rebuild Ramadi and Mosul because why give ISIS something back to take over? It's all, the argument is almost, let's destroy it so ISIS really doesn't have anything to fall back on. And Ramadi is an example of that. Yet ISIS is still there. All right, we I think need to start going to Q&A because I suspect with the topic this big there are going to be a lot of questions. So let's start with you, sir, in the back, yes. Corner, back, blue shirt. Uh, he'll see if he can help close he can get to you with the boom, but just go uh, ahead and try to project. The uh, friend I've had, I, I actually was in Baghdad in 04 with the uh, OGA, but um, I've always wondered that uh, maybe uh, the former vice president was correct that uh, Iraq should have three, you know, broken three ways the Irish, British, and French screwed up the Middle East 100 years ago. But I'm, I'm wondering, is there any possibility that Iraq would could evolve into a, a loose federation of Shia, Sunni, and Kurd, like semi-autonomous regions? Is there any possibility of that happening? Not without violence. Uh, the, the problem is it's, it's Iraq's like an iPad. If you drop it on the floor and it breaks in three pieces, it doesn't work. Um, the problem with with that, that argument, now I'd also say that that was the first time that Iraqis all agreed to disagree with an American. When, when Vice President Biden said that we should divide the country up in three. The problem is everybody wants Kirkuk, everybody wants Basra, meaning the Sunnis and the Shia want Basra. The Sunnis don't believe they're, they only make up 20% of the population because of the landmass they, they occupy. Uh, the Kurds want Kirkuk, the Shia want Kirkuk, the Sunnis want Kirkuk. Uh, there's, the, you know, the, the Shia want the Mosul Dam. You know, all the infrastructure is in is in contest. Everyone's con everyone will fight for it, and right now the Shia government has primacy, and they are in in those areas. They're in Hawija. They're they're where the infrastructure is. Remember that when ISIS rolled into Mosul, the first place Iraq went to was the revenge operation in Tikrit, where ISIS executed 1,400 Shia cadets. Uh, and they went there because that actually symbolized where Saddam Hussein was from, where the Sunni resistance was from, and they went in there and they decimated the place. And it was a decimated place where a thousand ISIS fighters actually held territory until we finally brokered with Baghdad uh, that we would bring in U.S. airstrikes to do things. So uh, the government now can decide whether that happens. Uh, there will be no Sunni stand. There will be no Kurdistan, unfortunately, because. You, you have the PUK is, is now sided uh, with their traditional ally, the RGC, Quds Force in Iran. I don't want to say ally, but if you have to look at what happened uh, uh, after the Gulf War, you literally saw the RGC, Quds Force, and the PUK working against the KDP 
uh, to, to try to seize her bill, and then you have that, that split. So you have these, all these factions that, that, are, that are vying for the same territory. So the partition can't happen without violence, and right now there's only one player on the, on the, on the, in the country that can decide what happens, and they're in charge. Right here in the middle, yeah. You, sir, front row, yeah. Hi, my name is Chris Orr, and as I kind of handed out uh, prior to the start of this uh, lecture, I just came back from Balad Air Base, uh, working with Sally Port Global, working as a contractor, providing security training and mentoring to the Iraqi Air Force in support of their F-16 fighter jet program. Right. And I hasten to add, I'm also a proud IWP donor. Uh, that long preamble aside, uh, going back to the early part of the lecture, Mike, when you talked about the uh, I guess, a, kind of a resurgence, for lack of a better word, of pro-Western, pro-business uh, elements in Iraq. Do you foresee the possibility of Dr. Ahmed Chalabi making a uh, political comeback anytime soon? Because I know National Review was a big advocate of him before Saddam's fall. We basically rode the bother horse into Iraq, and Ahmed Chalabi was part of that whole thing. I mean, that was the biggest problem. We, we had this simple calculation, who hates Saddam as much as we do? And it turned out to be Iraq. And so we picked Iraqi parties tied to Iran to, to go in. It was, it's, it's the opposite. It's like George Costanza and Seinfeld. You know, if I act this way, then I'll, I'll actually have a better day. <laughs> it's the first time I've heard a Seinfeld analogy for Iraq. Uh, Claire, and then this gentleman over here to Claire first. Go ahead. Yeah, thank you, um, uh, Paul and uh, Michael. It's really good. Um, you didn't exactly say so, but isn't the picture you're painting um, of Iran... Um, through Qasem Soleimani and the Quds Force, working with the, the Hashkashabi militia units, as well as these various political parties, isn't that model just like what they did in Lebanon in, in creating Hezbollah? And, um, it, it, I mean, isn't that where we're going? We, we've seen this movie before, haven't we? Exactly, Clara. So basically, the, the Lebanese Hezbollah model is why we have all of these Iraqi Shia militias in Iraq now, but something accidental happened as well. The Badr Corps model is now being used in Lebanon with the Lebanese Armed Forces, and that is basically saturating senior level officership, the, the, the ones that decide, with a pro-Iran, or at least intimidated by Iran, uh, Lebanese Hezbollah cadre, that while you can argue statistics that the majority of the LAF is not Shia, nor is it tied to Lebanese Hezbollah, there are enough leaders that are sympathetic, intimidated by, or influenced by. And again, what are we building the Lebanese Armed Forces to do? Is it to go after Israel? No. Is it to go after Jordan? No. Is it to go into Iraq? No. It's to protect itself from a civilian terrorist threat, which is Lebanese Hezbollah. In Iraq, we're building the Iraqi military to go after Terrorist groups, the problem is they're not going after Iran, ter Iranian terrorist groups. So when we assess the capabilities of an Iraqi security unit, it's whether or not they're effective against a Sunni terrorist group like ISIS or Al-Qaeda. We've never asked them to go after the Quds Force. We've never asked them to go after... Now, when I say there are examples, you know, the Charge of the Knights, things like that, where Maliki went after Shia militias, but let's be clear, Maliki went after Sadat, uh, Muqtad al-Sadat, uh, General Othman, when he was the 8th Iraqi Army Division Commander, went after Jam because he was a Badr Corps officer. He was tied to Badr. And it's things like that. I mean, he's a great, he's a great American. I know he's an Iraqi, but we, we still give him that tag, great American, because he'll go after both groups when Jason Mehdi was a problem. The thing is, 
the Iraqi army, there's not one unit in the Iraqi army that's willing to go after an Iraqi Quds Force militia. And now you basically have this freedom of movement, the Lebanese Hezbollah model, where all services are credited to the Hashim al-Shabi. They can get there before the government can get there and provide services. They, they provide security. They decide who comes back into Sunni areas. They're not allowing a Sunni refugee return to their, to their cities. And um, it's exactly that. And which caused, I'm sorry, Andrew, yeah, sure, so, sure. Which, which caused me to ask then, from your perspective, how successful do you think they're being in actually ensconcing themselves and building popular support for them through the provision of services, through this model that Claire's rightfully pointed out? The popular support, I mean, 80% of this country is against the Iranian influence. Right. The Shia political parties do not care. The militias do not care. The Iraqi security forces do not care. They, they decide. When you, this is something that we learned uh, when Saddam fell. Saddam was able to keep security in the country because he could make people disappear in the middle of the night. And there was no payback. There was no rule of law to hold him accountable. That is Iraq now. People can disappear in the middle of the night and we'll say, yeah, we're, we're looking into that and there should be an investigation. We have so many uh, disappeared Sunni military Jamals from this ISIS campaign, and yet there are no results from the from investigations and findings that both State Department and the Iraqi government under Prime Minister Body said they were looking into. Uh, so because you can make somebody disappear without repercussions, there is nobody cares about what the population thinks. They certainly don't care what the Sunni population thinks. They don't care what the Kurdish population thinks. And they need to care what the Shia youth think because they are going to be a force in 2022. I would agree. Sir, you had a question? Yes. Uh, my name is Reza Saidi. I would like to know what's the role of Saudi Arabia, which is missing in this discussion. Yes. Because Iran and Saudi are always competing together. So yes. if we don't talk about Saudi, we missing the formula. I'm happy to talk about Saudi Arabia. Um, Saudi Arabia needs to develop its own Qasem Soleimani, its own Iron Secrets Force. They don't. Um, people, people talk about Saudi Arabia's budget versus Iran's budget, and the Saudis have what, five times the budget of, of Iran on, on defense. Yet what's more effective, a militia like Lebanese Hezbollah that you pay uh, $200 million a year to keep going, or an American fighter aircraft that you pay $156 million for. Lebanese Hezbollah is, is more effective. So the Saudis, much like Lebanon and much like Syria, uh, Iran has told Riyadh, paint the desert green. We don't care. Let all the money come into Syria and Lebanon that you want to come in as long as you don't interfere with our strategic interests. And this isn't a criticism of my, my Saudi friends, but Qasem Soleimani marries his proxies. And he decides if they get divorced. Saudi Arabia says, inshallah, you're going to love me forever. And it doesn't happen. Um, there is no, I don't want to say Kaslan, but the Saudis are lazy when it comes to foreign policy. But, but the, 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 the one thing that is so consistent is the questions asked. You know, how many of you want to fight Assad? And five groups raise their hands and they receive Saudi money. And yet they don't do anything that benefits or further benefits Saudi's strategic interests. Saudi Arabia can give Muqtada al-Sadr a salary. Saudi Arabia can give him money. And he is going to do nothing that interferes with, with Iran's strategic goals in Iran. Now, everybody says it's, it's, it's Najaf uh, versus Qom. And, and yes, there is the religious pushback against Iran's influence in Iraq. 
However, every pilgrimage to any place in Iraq is facilitated by by Rome. The Iranian tourists. Uh, Iran had a capability of building airfields and airports and providing more electricity to Iraqi civilians than its own government did. And, uh, you know, I think Saudi can do a lot more, but it needs to have a consistent strategic message. But Muqtad al-Assad is not your guy. And the one thing we talked about Iraqi nationalism, Iraqis are very proud. I mean, people talk about our Sunni regional partners need to do more in Iraq, and Iraqi Sunnis will say no. We got this. Just let us do it. Give us the, the weapons, give us the funds, give us, give us the intel, and we can do it. The problem is that the scope of what they want to do is take back Baghdad and kick Iran out and take over the country again instead of killing ISIS and cultivating uh, charismatic leaders. But unfortunately, with depathification and this new ISIS law, where by three degrees of separation, if your third cousin was an ISIS member, it will affect you. And with those tools in place, depathification, the accountability and justice law, the terrorism law, and this new ISIS law, any charismatic Sunni leader that is developed or is championed by the Saudis or Sunni regional allies will become a target of the government. And some charge will be levied, whether a former Baathist, a uh, friend of ISIS. It, there's too many tools at their leisure to discredit to disenfranchise and to target charismatic Sunni leaders. Which makes it difficult, you're saying, for a Sunni leader to rise. So we just saw the female candidate for the Ministry of Education. I talked about her earlier. So she, she had to resign because her her brother was an ISIS spy. And that, the, the ramifications of that now, it may be true that he is all these things, but what message does that send to your population that we can't get credible people on? Right, right. I, uh, I saw a lonely hand in the back corner, and nobody knew if that's right. Yeah, right there. So I mentioned that um, you're mentioning ISIS, and, and um, they're not defeated, for instance. Right. Uh, you know, the past 30, 40 years, there's been a Taliban, you've got Al-Qaeda, and now you have the Ash. I mean, you know, they're obviously active. They're gone. They're not cool anymore. Somebody else is going to be picked another name, for instance. Um, you have a region where you have a large group just assume for a second it's completely wiped out, everyone's taken out, but you have some of the most radicalized members of the Ash coming from the UK, France, and Belgium, um, who are allies, who think people are going to be wiping them out. What point do we consider uh, ISIS defeated? Yeah, well, that's a great question. Well, I mean, partly it's a great question. Uh, you might want to run with this too, but partly it's a great question because of the set and, and the some of the teachings in Islam that go back so far, from that, that you get ISIS, Daesh, and Al Qaeda to point to, um, it's difficult to wipe out those belief systems and those structures that give rise to this. That's, that would be my initial response to that. Yeah, this is just the way it's going to be from now on. There will be more iterations because it might be a different name, but it will be a different name on the same basic thing. And the thing is, it'll be a different name yet, none of them go away. Al-Qaeda is still there. Um, ISIS is operating the Al-Qaeda model. <clears throat> it's it's uh, assessed to be anywhere between 30 and 40,000 ISIS members between Iraq and Syria. They're, they're operating at a higher level than Al-Qaeda ever operated at in Iraq. And um, that's what happens when you simply just knock down buildings and call it defeat. We knocked down buildings in Fallujah in 04 and 05 and never claimed victory over Al-Qaeda. In fact, we quickly learned that we just fueled the insurgency. 
that we just created more recruits for these terrorist organizations. So it's not only defeating the ideology, but it's going back to my point earlier. How do you deal with the Sunni military Jamal that's 10 years old today, 10, 10 years old today that's 20, 10 years from now, who's not an Islamist, who's not a terrorist, but wants revenge, and these entities are the ones that can get them there. And that's what we are going to be dealing with, because we form temporary alliances for temporary solutions, and it ends up with this permanent cycle of violence that we continue to have to address as different generations. This is just a new way to go. Uh, if we would have simply told the Taliban, we're going to be in Afghanistan for 17 years, we probably would have beat them in the first three. If we would have said that in Iraq, but we go in telling the enemy when we're going to leave. And the enemy has a clock that's much different than ours. The JCPOA was supposed to keep Iran from a nuclear weapon uh, for 10 years. In 2015, you know, we're in 2019 now. In six years, they were going to be able to have a bomb in that. And they were comfortable with that because 10 years to them is six months to us. And, and that's, that's what you get when you have a consistent foreign policy that goes for 40 years and you have a U.S. policy that changes every two years. I, I will say it right now that I predict a hard turn towards Iran by Baghdad if the president doesn't get reelected, because the president is the only one that really cares about this. And I'm not saying he cares uh, perfectly. I'm just saying that he, he, the Secretary of State does, and the Secretary of State has gone to Baghdad many times and mentioned Iran in every every sentence uh, that he that he's that he's had. And I, I'm telling you, if, uh, they're looking towards that, and we're likely to see a more, a closer aligned uh, Iranian Prime Minister unless we start getting behind this uh, the, this youth movement in Iraq and cultivating, or helping them cultivate leaders. When I say the international community, not just the U.S., right. cultivating these leaders will push back with them. We have, we have a new Arab Spring coming in the Middle East, and it is the, the youth that want a, a relationship with the West that is beneficial that has economic benefits, uh, technology, everything else, and not simply a U.S. special operator kicking down a door at 2 o'clock in the morning to kill uh, 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 an ISIS or al Qaeda. Yeah, agreed. Sir. Yeah. Thank you for your time. Mr. Kurt from Kurdistan TV. How would you describe the Kurdish situation or Farzani situation at the October 6th last year when those terrorist groups Kurdistan and Peshmerga and the U.S. did nothing. It came on the, uh, on the eve of the president designating the IRGC Quds Force as a terrorist organization. Qasem Soleimani rolls in with Assad al-Haq and Qatab Isbalah and the Iraqi counterterrorism, uh, federal police and counterterrorism services to basically forcefully take back Kirkuk uh, as punishment for the referendum. And it was a... Uh, it's another thing we haven't talked about today, is we keep abandoning allies. Yep. I mean, the Kurdish Peshmerga were, were a staunch ally in the fight against al-Qaeda. Um, no, no American died in Kurdistan. No American, uh, unless the recent ISIS fight, of course, an ISIS fighter killed somebody on the outskirts of Kurdistan as we were moving into the ISIS offensive. But this recent betrayal, these examples of recent betrayal, the, the Kurdish Peshmerga in, in, in Iraq, and now the YPG in Syria. Uh, it's going to be really hard for U.S. special operators and advisors and future secretaries of defense to to get a proxy force on the ground to be an ally, because that's the way we're going, because of our public, our media, our, our, our war fatigue.
is it'll be U.S. Air Power, Intel, and uh, advisors with a proxy force on the ground. And that proxy force cannot have recent examples of betrayal when we're asking them to do very difficult things over an enemy, like you said, that never goes away. <clears throat> that brings up another point I'll just make very briefly, that strong, long, enduring relationships between nations that are beneficial to both are uh, far deeper than just at the security force level and at the elite policy making level. They're, they're cultural, they're, uh, they're deep economic uh, uh, relationships. And uh, I, anyway, I would agree completely with what you're saying. I saw a couple of hands back there. Um, Jack. Yeah, thank you. Uh, this is a, oh, this is related to a previous question. I appreciate your reference to the technical elements. My question is, uh, I have a grandson in March. Uh, how about the children born this year, in March and April? What are they going to be doing in Iraq in 20 years? Or, in other words, the question is, how long, in your analysis, is this going to if we get this right, they can be visiting Iraq as, as tourists and saying, hey, this is where you know these relics used to be, or this is where ISIS had its last stand. Um, I had the honor of uh, talking to a graduating high school class of, uh, of uh, you know, a class that had all decided to join the military. And they were all 18 years old, 17 years old, getting ready to graduate and going to the military. And it had just happened to be on the you know 17-year anniversary of 9-11. So you literally have children that were born on 9-11 that are now serving our country and going to the same countries we've been in, uh, mainly Afghanistan since 9-11. So the forever war, we hear this term a lot. And the forever war doesn't have to be a forever war if we treated conflict like we did with World War II and others, where we just stay. And people go, it's very controversial. What do you mean stay? Well, stay. Uh, get your embassy in there, get some bases in there, you know, make make Iraq, you know, Japan. Make Iraq, I know it's controversial, right, but it shouldn't be. Uh, we're there anyway. <laughs> we might as well, we might as well say we're there and we're not going anywhere. Because look what happened with Germany, look what happened with Japan, look what happened with South Korea. You have uh, a consistent U.S. foreign policy that has stopped whatever aggression was taking place then. Um, in Iraq, and I know it's controversial, but this was the first time Iraqis of all um, sectarian backgrounds wanted the United States in Iraq. The only parties that want us out of Iraq right now are the ones tied to Iraq. Everyone else wants us in Iraq. There should be nothing wrong with saying, okay, let's get here, let's get a university in, let's start cultivating some business, let's help you break away from Iran, let's make Iran uh, Canada. We also need to look at the protests that are going on in Iraq. We have to look at the economic opportunities that Iran squandered under the JCPOA. We've got to listen to Iranians, and the international community has not put a spotlight on these um, leaderless protests across the country that the regime is very concerned about. We're coming up on the 40th, 40 year anniversary of the regime, and, and they are in trouble. The sanctions are working, they're about to lose Europe, uh, they're trying to offset uh, U.S. sanctions by using Iraq's economy. And that's something we need to pay that's attention right. to because Iran has permeated Iraq's economic, political, and security yeah, that's sectors. We didn't talk about very much that right. colonial, parasitic yeah. relationship. Um, all right. Unfortunately, we're out of time. This is such a complex topic, and we could spend easily another three hours here. Although I'm sure you all eventually want to go home and get dinner. Um, so we're going to have to end it now. Uh, uh, Michael and I will stick around afterward to talk informally if you all want to come up here and talk to us. But for now, join me in thanking him for coming and spending his afternoon.